Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our true and living God, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would shine the light of your word in our hearts and in our lives so that we would walk in your way, uh, the way that is best for us and which does good in the world. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it with thankfulness as your word, the word of life, to believe it and to put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Michael Kruger, an American historian of the early church, tells us that in the second century, when Christianity was still a despised and persecuted religion, you would have found more women than men in Christian churches. He estimates that women would have been up to two-thirds of the membership of congregations. And this is all the more impressive when you realise that the ratio of men to women in the Roman Empire was the reverse two-thirds male and one-third female because of high rates of death in childbirth, but also practices like female infanticide. Why? Why was the Christian faith to which it was costly to belong so attractive to women? Amongst the reasons given in contemporary documents, there are two that have their origin in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. Christianity's different sexual ethic that insisted on sexual purity for both men and women, and Christianity's rejection of divorce, teaching which put limits on male lust and male power. This morning, we will look ourselves at what Jesus says in Matthew 5 on desire and divorce. And I hope you'll see, like many women in churches in the second century, that though challenging this teaching is good, bringing security and stability to women and men in what is and has been the bedrock of most societies, the relationship of women and men in marriage and families. But two starting considerations. Firstly, Jesus is not starting out to give an exhaustive account of Christian sexual morality here. He is continuing what he started to do in last last week's passage where he said, To his followers, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is exposing as false the claim of the law-keeping scribes and Pharisees to be righteous by revealing instead the righteousness God expects of those who will live under his reign, live at peace in his presence. Secondly, men... If you think we are being targeted in these verses, we are. Jesus is talking primarily to men. Speaking, verse 28, of a man who looks with lustful intent and then in verse 32, of a man who divorces his wife. And that's because in that society, Jewish men were allowed more latitude in sexual behaviour. Oh, not as much as in the pagan Greco-Roman society, the surrounding empire, but still more than women. And in Jewish society, it was men, and basically men alone, who had the right to divorce unilaterally when they chose. So men, you are being addressed directly. 
But we'll see that in a society like ours, where more initiative in sexual matters and in divorces given to women, these verses speak to all, women and men. You have heard, says our Lord, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus starts by quoting the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The purpose of that commandment was to promote faithfulness and the security of family life, to prevent the fracturing of close communities by jealousy and to provide a stable context for the nurture of children and therefore the transmission of the covenant. It found positive expression in Proverbs where a husband is encouraged to always delight in the wife of his youth. Here Jesus is saying that this commandment was looking not just for abstaining from actual physical adultery but faithfulness of heart. The action he's condemning is not just noticing that someone's attractive. The word translated with lustful intent is the word taken from the Greek version of the uh, Tenth Commandment. It's to desire, to covet. And Jesus isn't speaking about a glance, but a continuous looking. This is a deliberate desire to possess another woman, making her the settled object of your lust. Entertaining this desire in your heart, says Jesus, is committing adultery. That is, wronging her, her present or future husband, and your wife if you have one. Righteousness is not just obeying the law externally and feeling then free to do and think everything else right up to the point where there's actual adultery, sex with another man's wife. Righteousness is a matter of the heart, a heart given to what God values, faithfulness, loyalty to one's spouse and respect for the relationships of others, wanting to promote the security and stability of those relationships for the good of your neighbour. It's only two verses, but what Jesus says was shocking for his first male hearers. Uh, Craig Keener, a commentator who's focused on first century society, says, many men in the ancient world thought lust a healthy and a normal practice. It was the way you maintained your virility and manhood. That is, they thought a bloke should be lusting after women who were not their wives and that that was healthy. And there was something wrong with you if you weren't doing that. Not so different from certain macho groups today, is it? But Jesus is telling them and us that that is wrong. Your desire, if you're married, is to be focused on your wife alone. And Jesus is here making the man entirely responsible for his heart, for his desire. Some rabbis also talked about lust in the heart, but then went on to talk about how women should dress, how they needed to wear veils, how they should not talk to men. Like some today, they made women responsible for the man's desire, not Jesus. There are no extenuating circumstances. The man is entirely and solely responsible for what he is thinking, what he lets his mind dwell on, what he desires. Now that is confronting, still confronting for us, isn't it? The desire to blame others for our own disobedience has been there since Adam, hasn't it? But men, you and I are solely responsible for what we give ourselves to think about, for what we let our hearts desire. 
And what Jesus says confronts us in other ways. Firstly, you'll hear, especially in relation to sexual behaviour, people say that anything is okay as long as it doesn't harm others. Now, of course, we could debate whether allowing yourself to think about possessing someone for the satisfaction of your sexual desire harms anyone. I think it does. I think it harms you, your wife, present or future, and the desired woman who you're objectifying, treating not as a person but something to possess for pleasure. And in this way, it diminishes the woman and will eventually debase society. So I think it does harm, but many will say, no, no, it's just thoughts. I haven't hurt anyone. Well, if you think that, you ought to know God says it is wrong. Such thinking and then basing your behaviour on that is not consistent with following Jesus. For Jesus says love of God and neighbour extends to what we let ourselves think about. And let's face it, if we're going to be honest, the line, it's okay as long as you don't harm anyone, is actually a lie, usually spoken by someone, usually a bloke, to a girl who's trying to persuade that other person to overcome their scruples and join them in or approve something they want to do. It's a lie. And, of course, it's not okay, never okay, to base your behaviour on what you think, what you want to think is the outcome of your behaviour, no-one will be hurt, ignoring what God says is wrong. I'm sure Adam and Eve were certain no one would be hurt by eating a piece of fruit, and they were wrong. Secondly, Jesus says here clearly that you can't be righteous and indulge in porn. See, some people speak of porn still as a healthy outlet or something that helps them live in a marriage where there's a mismatch between the husband's and the wife's desires. They can speak of it as something that, in a sense, helps them keep the letter of the law, stay in the marriage, and so they think even using porn, they're righteous. But porn is all about letting you possess and use women's bodies in your mind, about looking with lustful intent. And I say women's bodies because it is very much a mainly male activity designed for male visual arousal. Porn is sin in itself and it gives rise to all sorts of terrible consequences, setting, for example, unreal and harmful expectations in young men of their sexual engagement with young women or defeating intimacy in marriage as well as being addictive. (coughs) Jesus clearly says here porn is wrong. Now, we'll think about this a bit more, but before we do, note that Jesus expects us to take what he says with utmost seriousness. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes to hell. Now, this is plainly exaggerated language. It's hyperbole. Jesus is not telling you that physically plucking out an eye or sawing off your hand will stop you sinning. He's just talked about lust in the heart and you can keep on doing that with one eye and one hand. They don't try it. Just believe me about that, okay? (laughs) But he is using exaggerated language to make a point for he knows how much we love our sins. 
He's saying you have to be doing, willing to do whatever it takes to break with sin. We need to hear that because in the end, while porn is addictive, for some people keep going back to their sin, keep going back, say, to porn because at some level they want to. It works for them. But Jesus says you ought to give up even what you think is precious and valuable to break with sin because persisting in sin and righteousness will land you in hell. Jesus, you know, speaks more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. He speaks of it as grief and pain, the outer darkness, the place where the fire never goes out, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of conscious regret. And he speaks of it mainly in the context of speaking to religious people. Perhaps it's because religious people, people like us, who get familiar with talking about God and the idea of judgment, perhaps it's because religious people think they will get a special pass. Let familiarity undermine the seriousness of the choices we make. Jesus is serious. Adultery, lust in the heart, will land you in hell. If you think it's okay to keep on doing that, you need, first of all, to change your heart, to believe Jesus, because that's a terrible outcome, isn't it? And then, of course, you need to do whatever it takes to break from your lust, switching off the TV when those sex scenes come on, not straying to unknown websites, putting guards on your devices, keeping your devices in a public place, avoiding certain conversations. Yes, being thought, being willing to be thought weird because you don't have anything to do with those things. So men, young or old, single, widowed, divorced, married, Jesus is talking to us. It's said we live in a sexualized culture, even a pornified one, where people can download sexualized images of women on their phones at work or even in the school playground. Jesus is saying to us, we must not be part of that culture and we are responsible. We're responsible for what we let ourselves see, responsible for what we let ourselves think about, responsible for what we let ourselves desire. If we're to be salt and light as Jesus' followers, we have to be the people in our relationships with women Jesus calls us to be, and that starts in our hearts. If married, we're to be faithful in our hearts to our wives, to have them alone as the one we desire. If we're not yet married, well, you may be one day. One day you might be someone's husband, and the person you marry should have the right to expect that they... The real person they are are alone in your affections and not have to live as a pale comparison to some unreal image of the feminine derived from the internet. You see, the world needs not powerless men but good men who take responsibility for their own hearts. And women, young and old, single, widow, divorced, married, this is no longer first century Palestine. Women have more freedom and more agency in initiating relationships in our society. And women are taught by our society that equality involves sexual liberation. Being free like men to have your sexual pleasure wherever you find it, entitled to lust after whomsoever you want. 
Now, many of you, I suspect, have already realised that that vision of liberation has not worked for lots of women, but has just removed one more barrier to male lust achieving its goal, sexual gratification without commitment. But Jesus' words spoken to men apply to you also. He expects his followers to be faithful in marriage, faithful to their own husbands and to not look around and covet other women's husbands. And he expects you to accept responsibility for your own desires. God's instruction that we keep sex for marriage and be faithful in marriage is better. It is the path to satisfying, secure intimacy in which you can flourish even as we grow older and our bodies change. And it's also the place in which your children can enjoy stability and security. At least it should be. If Jesus' followers listen to Jesus as he continues to address powerful men, the men with power, on the same theme. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Jewish society, unlike the surrounding pagan society, divorce was a male privilege. Men could divorce their wives unilaterally, on their own initiative, without any legal hearing, without any external process or scrutiny. They simply had to send them away after writing a certificate of divorce. The certificate provided for by Moses in Deuteronomy 24, a certificate that stated specifically, by the way, you are free to marry any man. While there was debate amongst the rabbis on the grounds of divorce, you know, some saying only serious offence would be grounds, others saying the husband was free to divorce his wife because he'd found somebody else he preferred, in practice, it seems, divorce happened whenever the husband wanted it. And this plainly left women in a very vulnerable situation, very dependent on keeping their husbands happy, for divorce could mean destitution if, they, if the women could not return to their families. In this context, Jesus is saying to men, you should not divorce your wives. But notice what Jesus is not saying here, or not doing here. In these two verses, he's not giving a comprehensive new set of laws on divorce, stricter rules. He is exposing the scribes and Pharisees' claim to be righteous. He's saying, don't think you're righteous if you use a legality to mask selfishness. Don't think using the right process for using your power to betray the trust your wife has put in you, to cruelly expose your wife to poverty if you decide she has stopped pleasing you or you desire someone else. Don't think that using the right process preserves your righteousness. In fact, again, using graphic language, exaggerated language, he tells them what he thinks their righteousness is like where they hide their selfishness behind legal process. <coughs> I say to you, he says, everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. 
Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. There are lots of people who try and explain that by saying the first marriage is still in force and that in her destitution she may have to remarry while still being married in the eyes of God and so become an adulteress. I actually think that misses the rhetorical point almost entirely. What do you call someone who makes makes his wife commit adultery? You call them a pimp. Now that's ugly, isn't it? And ugly to hear. But it is powerful. Divorcing your wife, says Jesus, that's what your righteousness is like. And he says you cannot stop the contagion of your sin by relying on legality. Think that participating in the system where men can divorce and remarry as they please will keep you righteous. He who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You should not divorce your wife. And if you do, don't still think you're righteous. But Jesus makes one exception here, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Now, that's not mentioned in Mark and Luke's version of this teaching, but that was probably because they took it for granted. It didn't need to be said. See, in the Old Testament law, sexual immorality, and the term's a wide term to include any kind of illegitimate sexual behaviour, sexual immorality ended the marriage because the penalty of such activity was death. In both Jewish and Roman law in the first century, a husband who discovered his wife's adultery had to divorce her. That was Joseph's dilemma with Mary's pregnancy in chapter 1. He had to divorce her. It was just a question of how he was going to do it, quietly or publicly. Jesus, with this exception, is making explicit what all assumed, that sexual immorality ended the marriage. And where the marriage was ended, remarriage was certainly permissible. And that's still true. Sexual immorality breaks the one flesh union, which is at the heart of marriage. Now, Jesus will teach more fully on divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19. But notice that neither here nor in chapter 19, neither here nor in chapter 19, is he answering questions, well, that we often have, questions like, my husband divorced me three years ago and now I've met a kind man who wants to marry me. Is that okay? Or, my husband is abusing me. What shall I do? See, Jesus is addressing here the powerful and the perpetrators not the injured and the innocent. You cannot read the answers to those questions straight off this passage. It needs a lot more thought, although I think the answer to the first question is wonderful. But let's talk together so that any issues from the first marriage are ironed out. And to the second, the answer is, are you safe? Do you need to leave? Let's talk. But we have to hear what he is saying here to men. You should not use the power you have to divorce your wives and where you do, don't think observing the legal process makes it okay and consistent with living the life God expects from his people. The better righteousness is committed to faithfulness in marriage and you should enter marriage knowing it is for life or as he says in Matthew 19 that those whom God has joined together, people must not separate. God expects his people to be faithful 
and true to their promises as he is. Now that in itself is a big call, isn't it? As those who have known periods of unhappiness in marriage or are even now experiencing the loneliness of a loveless marriage, realise. But it's a call that creates security for the vulnerable, whether it's wives and children or men. And it's a call that still needs to be heard, isn't it? Because you hear of blokes who divorce their wife of 20 years for someone younger and think they've been decent, righteous, because they gave her what they decided was a good settlement and have made provision for the kids. Or you hear of women who leave their husband because they found someone with whom it is just so much easier to relate, to share their hearts with. And they think that that's being authentic and so... Good. So we're in a world where the goal is maximising individual happiness, living for self, being true to yourself. In that world, it's thought by some to be almost a duty to move on when you cease to be happy, when relationship is not fulfilling for you. It's talked about almost as a step in personal growth, despite always the grief that's there. So we need to hear as followers of Jesus, that we must be different. We need to hear that amongst Jesus' followers, marriage is for life, where one partner has not destroyed that union by sexual immorality or abandoning the other. And we need to know that faithfulness is good, especially for women who still disproportionately bear the economic cost of divorce and for children who would be spared grief and confusion. Knowing that, if our hearts are set to do the Father's will, to live the righteous life, he calls for we need to be wise, don't we? Wise if we're yet unmarried and whom we choose to marry. You should only choose to marry someone who shares your commitment to living Jesus' way, who is signing up for life. Someone with whom you can nurture each other's faith and godliness and who will keep you involved in the community of God's people who will support your lifelong commitment to each other. There's no guarantee, but it's a great first step. And we need to be wise if we're finding marriage hard by going and seeking help, seeking it early because you are getting help to live as Jesus' disciple. And we need to be wise in marriage however we're going, by keeping on investing in our marriages, keeping date nights, going to marriage tune-ups, and I think Clinton's running one this year, and it'll be happening, right? Having a relationship that's real, not just being held together by the kids and routine. So you actually have to invest in knowing and loving each other. Now, lots more could be said for a relationship between men and women are the substance of our lives. And much more could be said because these few verses are just the tip of the iceberg, representative of a much bigger body of teaching on sex and marriage, a much bigger understanding of reality. When it comes to sex and marriage, that bigger picture is informed by three pillars, and I'll just mention them. Firstly, an understanding of marriage based on Genesis 2, where marriage between a man and a woman is God's gift and is revealed as an exclusive, lifelong union given, Paul tells us, to be a sign of the union between Christ and his church. So a commitment to faithfulness in marriage is actually stitched into the very fabric of the gospel. Secondly, there's the character of God 
who is faithful to his promises, faithful to the promises he makes his wayward bride Israel, the God whose love is generous and steadfast. He says in Malachi that he expects his people to be faithful like him and warns against faithlessness. 2.15, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Oh, and thirdly, this understanding of discipleship in marriage is supported by our conviction about the future, that this life is not all there is, and happiness in this life is not our controlling ambition. For what is at stake in living God's way in our marriages is eternity, that there is a judgment for those who engage in sexual immorality, including in our hearts. Oh, and that for those who persevere in following Jesus, embracing his righteousness by living a life of self-denying love, whether they're married now or single, there is the joy of being caught up in the consummation of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and his bride, the church, the joy of sharing in the great marriage feast of the Lamb. More could be said, but it should be enough to see that Jesus' instruction about sex and marriage are not isolated rules, but an expression of a deeper, more embracing vision of reality, an expression of what we believe about God, of our experience of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to us in Christ, an expression of what we believe about God's provision in creation and of what we believe about our end. But for now... Don't lose sight of the primary purpose of this teaching here in Matthew, to expose as hopeless and far from God a righteousness based on outward conformity but having no heart commitment to God's ways. This is given to bring home to us again that the kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit, for those who know their, only their need before God and whose only hope is in his mercy in his gift to them of the kingdom in his son Jesus, who will commit themselves to that life of repentance and faith in Jesus. It's true, isn't it? Surely Jesus' teaching here brings us a conviction of our need. I mean, who hasn't desired someone who's not ours to desire? Let their minds stray or worse, used porn and excused it, engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage, treated a member of the opposite sex as someone there merely to satisfy our desire, used power selfishly to get our own way even in marriage and hid our selfishness and cruelty behind some process or legal manoeuvre. We are sadly a society that is very compromised and wounded in terms of sexual conduct. Jesus, who teaches us this righteousness, is the one who came to seek and save sinners, who says he has not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, and that includes sexual sinners. There is forgiveness for the selfish abuse of power, Forgiveness for the defiling of yourself and others by sexual immorality. Forgiveness even for faithless abandonment. Forgiveness for those who repent and believe the gospel, that Christ has died for their sins and is now the risen Lord with authority to forgive, to forgive even them, to forgive all who cry out to him 
to be spared from the hell of which he speaks. Do you doubt that there is forgiveness for you? Well, remember that there was forgiveness even for David, that murderer and adulterer. Forgiveness through Christ's death for his sin. This teaching convicts us of our sin so that we would turn to Christ and rely on him. Yet it's teaching that forgiven sinners like us must be wholly committed to. This is what God our Father expects of us, to love what he loves, faithfulness to our promises, steadfast, generous love to our husband or wife with whom we have entered into the covenant of marriage with, integrity where we are in ourselves what we show to the world. And this is teaching to which we should unashamedly be committed for it is good. It's still good for the weak, the less powerful in relationships, the vulnerable, to be protected from the lust of the powerful and to find security in lifelong exclusive faithfulness. To find that protection and security because believers are committed from the heart to faithfulness and accept responsibility for their desires. This teaching brings stability to families and can overcome loneliness and make our marriages the place for intimacy to flourish. God commands us for our good and his people should show that in the way they live together. We shouldn't be ashamed of this teaching but wholeheartedly committed to living out and commending by living out the distinctive sexual morality that our Lord Jesus teaches because it is attractive. And we should be teaching this to our children. That is urgent for we do live in a sexualized society where they're exposed to sexual images and conversation from an early age, can have access to sexual imagery porn from their iPad or phone out in the backyard or in the schoolyard. As well as protecting them from inappropriate behaviour, we need to be teaching them about God's good gift of sex and its place in marriage, equipping them to resist a very powerful culture that tells them lies about sex, that models misuse, that breeds grief and hurt and loneliness, as we have witnessed this past two weeks in the sad stories emerging from Canberra. Now, I have put at the end of the transcript a link to a podcast called... uh, (coughs) It's called The Pastor's Heart, but this particular one's called Consent, Rape Culture and the Problems Our Teens Face. And it's a response to the petition started by uh, a Kambala schoolgirl about teenage sexual abuse, the abuse she and her friends endured at the hands of, well, their teenage male peers. It is a good podcast. It doesn't matter how old your child is. It's actually helpful to listen to it. And it has a series of helpful resources on the web page. We have to teach this sexual ethic. Well, we've covered lots of issues, ones that affect us deeply in these few verses. So if you have questions, come and ask. If some of these topics have stirred things up for you personally, 
whether it's the grief of your divorce or the loneliness you're experiencing, come and talk or talk and pray with a good Christian friends because we're in it together. Oh, if you're wrestling with guilt <coughs> and God in his mercy has convicted you of the reality of judgment, of hell, come and talk. Or if you're needing encouragement and a strategy of break, to break with sin, come and talk. God has given us each other to encourage and teach each other so that we can live as Jesus' disciples. But be serious about living God's way from the heart. Hear your kind Saviour's words and act on them. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus speaks to us for our good so that we can live and live to his glory. Listen to him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your mercy, uh, through the powerful work of your spirit, we pray that we would live as repentant, forgiven sinners who hear Jesus and put what he says into practice. In Jesus' name, amen.